Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host and fellow agitator is Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today on the program, a beleaguered EEOC continues to fight for workers. The Biden administration is trying to drive down wages. Yes, really. Uh, (laughs) We talked to Tony Quillen, business manager of the IBEW 558 here in North Alabama, and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number. And the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, or if you want to see what we're up to, you can find us online where anywhere you can find anything online, on Twitter, on Facebook, YouTube... And newly on TikTok, we're on TikTok, and I did some, you know, so what? Uh, one of the things that we do on, on YouTube is cut clips from the program and put them on as its own video, and so we've been doing that on TikTok as well. But yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before that? Earlier this week, I did some native TikTok-only content. I just recorded around a rant. I was feeling I was feeling agitated. I was feeling irritated. And I just picked up my phone and I was like, well, we have this TikTok account. Let me I'll put something on there. So in addition to getting clips from the show on the TikTok, you might even get TikTok exclusive content. So follow us on that. Give all your data to the Chinese government. Um that's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, you'll be able to f- find us on there. It's what uh, the kids are doing. It's what the kids are doing. So we want to be where the kids are, even if we have to uh, give all of our data to the Chinese government. We're already giving all of our data to American billionaires. Why not give them to Chinese billionaires, too? Might as well. Might as well. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest Single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. No American or Chinese billionaires are funding this show, in That's fact. right. No American or Chinese billionaires fund the show. All of our funding comes from unions, from nonprofits, and from our listeners. And, um, and there's one union-represented business, Unionly. 
is one of our sponsors. They're a business, but they're union represented and uh, they work with unions. So, so uh, and, and, and if you're a member of a local uh, union and you want to sponsor the show, hit me up. No better time to do that than now. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy this hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, or our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. So we've got a local story here in Alabama. The EEOC put out a statement on Tuesday announcing a federal lawsuit against Chipotle for their failure to provide a workplace free from harassment. Before we get too deep in the weeds on that, though, Adam, can you what just tell us what? Because you know, when we talk about the NLRB, we like to we we, we like to try to um, bring it down a little bit. You know, explain the acronyms and stuff like. So, what is the what is the EEOC? So, the EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And essentially, they're the federal agency tasked with upholding and enforcing your rights under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which more or less says you can't be discriminated against at work for uh, certain protected categories. And those protected categories, of course, include race, uh, but also gender, color, religion, national origin, age, uh, specifically the age 40 and up, uh, pregnancy, citizenship status, familial status, disability status, veteran status, genetic information. Those are all protected categories. So if you find yourself discriminated against at work and you believe it is because of your status, one or more statuses under those protected categories, then you may have a claim. And the EEOC is the agency where you do that. And um, so if you've ever just saw some news coverage, such as the one Jacob mentioned already, and you hear about discrimination claims uh, in the workplace, harassment claims in the workplace, uh, hostile work environments, a phrase you've probably heard, that's what we're talking about here. And this is open for any individual. You can uh, file an EEOC claim. You do not have to belong to a union or, or go through a lawyer to do this. Uh, though obviously, many people do rely on their unions and do pursue uh, lawyers to file their claims. And uh, essentially, once you file a claim, the EEOC will investigate. And they're going to ask from uh, your side of the story, what evidence you have, you know, what's your claim, how were you discriminated against, and, and when, and where. Uh, but then they're also going to get the employer side of the story. And the employer will also have to respond in writing. So it's one of the few instances you have where you can actually make an employer respond in writing to you, um, or at least to the government in this case. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, like many agencies tasked with these sorts of protections, it's never really had the funding and the staffing to do its job uh, really in a way that I think folks like us would be happy with. And that's not to you know demean the people who are there who are doing their best, but there's a lot of workers in this country and there's a lot of discrimination that happens. So it's difficult for them to you know a attack every single instance. So a lot of people find that their claims uh, 
result in an inconclusive investigation and answer uh, by the EEOC. And at that point, you're given what we call the right to sue letter. And this will give you the opportunity to pursue litigation if you so choose. So even if the EEOC does not uh, come right out and say, yes, you were discriminated against and, and here's why we think so, even if it's an inconclusive answer, you still have the right to take it to court. Um, and that's often where you'll you'll hear about these discrimination lawsuits. Um, but the last thing I'll say on that is really for it to be a hostile work environment, for it to be a good claim, you have to have a couple criteria here, three criteria, really. Uh, first of all, a protected class that we mentioned has to be involved, whether it's disability, gender, race, etc. And you have to believe and have some evidence that whatever harm was done to you was because of your protected class. The second thing would be that it's severe enough or per pervasive enough that it actually alters the terms of your employment. So the an obvious one would be you got fired, uh, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. It, it certainly could be lower than that. It could be promotions and demotions and salary, all, all of that. And the third thing would be that the employer has responsibility. So those are sort of three tests uh, in terms of what makes a solid EEOC claim. Thank you for that. Yeah, so let's let's go ahead and, and, and jump into the this story out of Alabama. Um, AL.com reposted an article from the Charlotte Observer by Tanisha Kinney talking about this. And, and so this is actually a lawsuit from the EEOC. You know, you mentioned that, that if the EEOC is not going to investigate it or their investigation is inclusive, then, you know, you obviously personally have the right to sue. But if there's a particularly compelling case or the EEOC does, does investigate, if you bring them a lot of facts, um... And, and, and they feel like go they can take on your case, the EEOC, and this is what's happening in this case. Uh, so they filed a lawsuit, and it alleges that the company ignored complaints from the Prattville worker. Um, and the complaints included that she was receiving unwanted sexual advances, sexual comments, and sexually offensive conduct, including sexual contact by a male manager. The same manager allegedly harassed other women at work as well. The harassment began in 2019, and the woman quit after the issue went unresolved by the company. <clears throat> and so, you know, it's good what the EEOC is doing here uh, in pursuing this, this issue, but I think you can see the problem the issue being tackled is over two years old. The woman was forced out of the company because of because of the harassment that she faced. She didn't feel like she could continue going into work every day because she did not have a safe environment. She wasn't able to continue working there safely. And we're talking over two years just to file the lawsuit. The, the case is not concluded yet, right? This is almost, you know, just the beginning of a stage that could take as long. So, you know, how long, how much longer is this woman going to have to wait for a resolution on this? Could it, you know, how long is it going to take it, it, its way to wind its th way through the courts? To another two years? A year? 
you know, this woman is potentially looking at half a decade, half a decade for resolution of this issue. And and this isn't a case where the EEOC feels like the case is so strong, they're taking it up themselves. Right. Yeah. And that's that's pretty significant. The fact that right. they would do that, uh, because, as I mentioned, I, I, you know, I don't have the statistics offhand, but certainly in my experience assisting union members with these the vast majority received an inconclusive investigation. So, it, you know, to have such damning evidence that the EEOC has taken it upon themselves to do this, you know... This is a really strong case. Right, right. And, you know, and this is a lesson, unfortunately, that all workers should really take to heart, which is working through the legal system, through the courts, through the federal agencies that are, you know, supposed to be there to uphold our rights under law... It is a very long process. It is a tiring process. It is not there for a quick resolution of your issue. And, um, you know, that's something that all of us as working people have to deal with. We have to deal with the fact that if we have something happening on the job, yes, we have certain rights. And yes, uh, you know, there are lawyers available and unions available to help you pursue those rights. But that doesn't mean it's going to fix it in a reasonable time frame because the laws are not stacked in our favor. Right. And that's and it's it's worth remembering that this is the process that corporate media plants that people on this radio station want you to believe can and should replace unionization as a way to protect yourself on the job. This is the process where this woman is looking at half a decade for a resolution where she's being harassed at work to such a degree she does not feel safe continuing to work there. This is the process that people on this radio station are going to tell you that, oh, you don't need a union. You have the EEOC. You don't need a union. You have the Department of Labor. You don't need a union. You've got minimum wage laws. We've got child labor laws. We've got overtime laws. We have the weekend. You don't need a union because we have all of these things in the law. And then at the same time, they're going to turn around and, and, and fight against making these institutions stronger. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Because clearly it can't and it won't ever be a sufficient... Uh, replacement, but it can be made better. And this is not at all on the folks at the EEOC either. Like so many agencies, like Adam said, like so many agencies that are tasked with doing good things for workers, politicians are reluctant to fund it. While increases like things to the police budgets and military budgets are limitless. In 1980, so let, let, let's, let's survey the state of the EEOC and the state of the American workforce. In 1980, there were 90.9 million workers in the United States. Today, there are 163.5 million we are approaching double the workforce that we had in 1980, and the federal agency tasked with Stopping and remedying workplace discrimination and harassment has only 56% of the staff that it did in 1980. Wow. 
They have less staff now as a real number, not like when you account for ratio or anything. There were about 3,500 staff at the EEOC in 1980, and today there are less than 2,000. About 56% of the staff that it did in 1980. When you account for inflation, it has less funding than it did in 1980. In just the 10 years from 2009 to 2019, the agency lost more than 20% of its investigators. The EEOC also has to enforce more laws today than it did in 1980, like the Americans with Disability Act, the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Fair Pay Act. These are all laws against discrimination in the workplace that were not around in 1980. So in addition to we have a larger workforce, we now have more protections theoretically against discrimination and harassment in the workplace than we did in 1980. And we have less funding and less manpower. Yeah, I mean, a common sense, just common sense would tell you, hey, if we have like twice as many workers and we have multiple new laws to enforce, shouldn't right. we have maybe twice the budget and twice the manpower we had back then? And that's the that that's even under the the assumption that in 1980, everything was really great. Right. <laughs> like, it, yeah, exactly. Which like, is a big <laughs> assumption, obviously. Right. Very big assumption. Um, uh, there was a really great article in Vox in 2019 that talked about uh, that talked about the state of the EEOC. Um, and, and, and so when you when you look at this, when you when you look at the state of the American workforce, and the state of the funding and the staffing of the EEOC, clearly this is going to affect the ability of working people to get relief on these issues of discrimination and harassment in the workplace. From that article in Vox from 2019, quote, Since 2008, the EEOC has doubled the share of complaints involving companies or local government agencies that it places on its lowest priority track. Are you following me? That means that it's not done. I'm not saying that they're doubling the share of complaints involving companies. They're doubling the share of the complaints that get sent to its lowest track, effectively guaranteeing no probes, mediation, or other substantive efforts on behalf of those workers who are shunted into the lowest priority track. About 30% of cases were shunted to that category last year, according to internal data obtained by the Center for Public Integrity through a public records request. The EEOC said it has focused its limited resources on charges where the government can have the greatest impact on workplace discrimination. But as it cut its backlog by uh, as it cut its backlog by 30% in the last decade much of that in the past 2 years the already low share of workers getting help has dropped only 13% of all complaints the EEOC closed last year ended with a settlement or other relief for the workers who filed them down from 18% in 2018 in 2008 only 13% of all complaints the EEOC closed last year ended with a settlement or other relief for the workers who filed them, compared with 18% in 2008. 
That's a pretty big issue. And so let's look at, see what the EEOC has to say about the investigation process. The EEOC's frequently asked question page has this to say about the length of time that workers can expect before they see resolution. The quote, the length of time needed to complete an investigation depends on a number of factors, including the number and type of issues and bases alleged in the charge and the amount of information and documentation that needs to be gathered and analyzed. In recent years, it has taken us, on average, six months to investigate a charge. That's not, that's just to investigate. That's not reaching a settlement. That's not filing a lawsuit. That's just how long does it take to investigate it? Six months. However, please note that investigations can be longer or shorter than six months, depending on several factors indicated. Uh, we are often able to resolve a charge faster through mediation, usually in less than three months. Note, however, that not all cases go to mediation at the EEOC, which is what happened with this Chipotle worker. Chipotle refused to go through mediation, and so the EEOC is having to take them to court. Six months. That's a long time for a working person to, you know, what what is going to be happening during the six months? A working person who's facing sexual harassment on the job is going to either be getting up every single day and continuing to deal with harassment, or they're going to quit. A worker who's being who's having to deal with discrimination on the job, uh, who's maybe not being paid as much as her male colleagues for the same work, or potentially a black worker who is uh, not being given a promotion because of discrimination, they're going to have to deal with lower pay for a long time. Oh, absolutely. That's not, that's absolutely. not acceptable. Um, it's, you know, I, I've seen these cases just drag on and on and on. And, you know, especially when you're talking about dollar amounts, well, you know, mm -hmm. those dollar amounts add up over right. time. And, you know, yeah, you hope that you get back pay when it's all said and done, but that doesn't that doesn't keep your lights on this month. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's a great point in terms of harassment and, and discrimination, that if it's something you're enduring, how long can you endure it? Can you endure it for six months or more? to get an answer from the EEOC, uh, even if it comes back in your favor? I mean, how long can you really deal with it? Yeah. And so, you know, my advice would be if you find yourself in this situation, you know, the stronger your complaint is, the, you know, typically the quicker the resolution is going to be and the more favorable the outcome will be. So the more you can document, and this is just a pro tip to every worker listening. If you don't have some, if you don't take notes at work, you're, you're already behind the eight ball. Uh, you need to have a little calendar planner, notes app on your phone, whatever it may be, to document names, people, places, in, any you know incident that that doesn't feel right. Document as much of the details as you can because you never know when you're going to need to bust these notes out, and and that could be. The difference between you know a six-month investigation or maybe a three-month investigation yeah yeah exactly i mean just like with the with the nlrb charges for starbucks firing workers because of unionization right these are just workers they don't have a year of salary that they can just sit on while they wait for a board resolution like the bosses can
And that's the issue. Um, and, and, and of course, and, and recall, you know, it's taken two years for this investigation to come to a point in the case of the Prattville, Alabama worker where the agency feels comfortable moving to a lawsuit. We're already at two, two and a half years on this case, and we're just now filing a lawsuit. You know, what has this woman been doing in the two years since? I mean, she's probably had to get a different job. She pro- it w- probably would have been nice to just be able to stay at Chipotle and continue working there instead of having to find a different job. Maybe, she, hopefully, she found a, a better job, but it's never fun having to go to interviews. That takes time. Having to uh, reacclimate yourself to a new workplace, that takes time. And it's something that the bosses don't have to deal with. And this, of course, has an effect on the workers at the EEOC because you're not going to work for an agency like the EEOC if you like don't have if you have zero connection to the kind of work, right? I mean, it's the same thing as working at the NLRB or being a union staffer or, um, you know, doing some sort of justice or, or being a teacher. You don't get into these things to make bank. You do it because, like, you care about workers. Um, and from that same Fox article, this, uh, quote, this has been wearing on the agency's workers. In 2018, almost half of EEOC staff said in a government survey that they didn't have the resources to do their jobs, which is higher than average for federal agencies. The agency had the highest percentage of staff strongly disagreeing that their workload is reasonable, as well as the highest percentage strongly agreeing that the work they do is important. Okay, do you see that? Do you see the juxtaposition there? These the staffers at the EEOC are more committed to the mission of their agency than any other federal agency. They feel more strongly about it. And they also feel the most strongly that they're being asked to do too much. To- I mean, it's just, it's insane. Uh, uh, back to the article. It's really, really emotionally draining. Obviously, said former EEOC regional attorney Charles Gurrier, who was based in Birmingham, Alabama, before leaving in 2012. He said he advised his staff to make peace with not being able to help every worker. The budget was so tight, he said, that sometimes his office would run out of paper because there wasn't money to buy more. I mean, this is paper is not expensive. The idea that you don't have enough money for paper. Uh, Back to the article, at the agency's San Diego office, former district director and mediator Tom McCammon said employees regularly went into work on weekends to spend unpaid hours finishing cases. Even so, he said, sometimes so much time passed before investigators got to a case that they couldn't reach the complainant. The phone number was dead, the home address no longer valid. Because the workers had to move, because maybe they got a job in a different town, or maybe their internet, or, or maybe their phone service was cut off because they ended up leaving the job or getting fired because of discrimination. They couldn't pay it anymore. Maybe they, get, they became homeless. It takes so long that people's life situations can change can change drastically. Back to the article. In the meantime, cases are stacking up by the hundreds with no investigation. Each one of these files is a person who had a problem. This feeling has also not let up under the Biden administration. This agency was under constant attack under Trump with his administration actually seeking to cut their budget. 
not just not just keep it flat funding. He wanted to cut it by twenty million dollars. Trump did. But remember, Trump is a is a warrior for the working class. Is what they want you to believe. On top of Republicans holding up appointments, they were hoping for relief under the Biden administration. The EEOC workers were, but unfortunately. They've so far been left out in the cold. I spent about an hour and a half on the phone with current AFGE EEOC Council President Rachel Seanfield last week, and she said that she doesn't think morale has ever been lower at the agency because of the fact that the relief just hasn't come yet. Biden is current is currently pushing for an increase to the uh, to in the budget for the EEOC, but their staffing levels are still basically the same as they were under the Trump administration. There hasn't been a hiring spree. They haven't had a huge, and I don't understand this from a, a political perspective for the Democrats. Because I, these these budgets we're talking about are minuscule compared to other aspects of the budget. This agency has a $400 million budget annually, nationally. And that's less than they did in 1980 when you account for inflation. Why not just double it? Why not just double it? Triple it. You're not going to notice it in the national debt. If you tripled the national if you tripled the budget for the EEOC, you would still only be the total budget of the EEOC would be something like what 10% of the increase to the defense budget i mean it's just it, it it doesn't make political sense and of course it's not good for the workers that depend on the EEOC right because this is a real opportunity for like material relief to people, right. people who are being discriminated against, you know, in the workplace who need help from their government to remedy the situation, whatever that looks like. And so here's an opportunity for the government to actually help people. Yeah. Uh, government agencies are never going to be able to replace workers securing their rights for themselves. Right. But there's absolutely no excuse for this situation to continue under any government. Our elected leaders, like, I mean, seriously, they've got they've got to do more to adequately fund agencies like these that support working people. It's Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's why we've seen such an attack by, you know, like you mentioned with the Trump administration, any agencies that do ostensibly serve the people that actually help everyday working class folks. Uh, those are the agencies that are always under threat, the ones that are always being sabotaged with, uh, you know, directors who disagree with the mission, with budget cuts, with hiring freezes. It's it's meant it's meant to, you know, not only hurt working folks by not receiving these services, but also to really just get people disenchanted with the very, you know, with the idea in, in general that government could actually be helpful. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's take a break really quick. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Tony Quillen. He is the business manager of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 558. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. 
We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern worker movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. I'm all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only union talk radio program this is the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller if you've got anything to add you can give us a call the phone number is 844-899-TVLR that is 844-899-8857 you can also send us a text that way as well um you can also we got lots of ways that you can get in touch with us we are live streaming on youtube and facebook and if you want to, you can uh, you can chat with us 
right there. We get your chats there. And, uh, and, and we appreciate you tuning in. Got lots of people tuning in on Facebook this morning. Good morning to uh, Martha and Mel Sutton from West Alabama. Vonda McDaniel from Nashville. William Cardenas from Ohio, I believe. He came down and was hanging out with the Laborers Union. Uh, he's a staffer for the Laborers Union, and he was here in North Alabama. Uh, for a while. Joe and Dana Marshall, appreciate everybody tuning in. And of course, everybody in the YouTube chat, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Up next, we've got Tony Quillen. Tony Quillen is the business manager for IBEW Local 558. He is president of the State Electrical Workers and president of the North Alabama Building Trades. He's got a lot of hats, busy man. So, Tony, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, uh, Jacob. I'm excited about uh, being on this morning and um, I can't wait to see where it goes. Absolutely. So let, let's start off with a little bit about you. You know, how did how did you get into the union? You told me yesterday that uh, that, that your family wasn't uh, wasn't in the union. You kind of you're one of the first people in your family to to be in a union. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, no members of my family have ever been associated with organized labor at that point. And um, I made a, a good friend by the name of Gene Fulmer years ago. Gene's a uh, quite a few years older than I am, uh, but he was a member of Local 558 dating back to the late 60s. And uh, that was my pathway in. Uh, back when I got in, it was um, a little bit of a country club mentality. It was hard to get in unless you had a lot of connections. Uh, but that was my connection. And that's been 22 years ago uh, this past uh, April. And so it's been a great career and um, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And you talked about how, you know, you're, uh, you know, some, some people talked about it in, in your union, like not having much growing up, um, and, and then talking about how their parents worked for the TVA. And that was, that was not your, um, <laughs> that wasn't your experience before you came into the union. That's correct. Um, I grew up in what I would consider, uh, real poverty in Alabama, born in 74. And, um, I uh, spent 1981, 1982 with no electricity. Uh, I remember taking a bath by wood-burning stove uh, at night. Uh, we had coal oil lamps uh, to light our home up at the time. And uh, the school system actually bought me my shoes and jacket for first and second grade. And uh, so after that, uh, I was out in the country. I moved over and I grew up in what you call the projects or government housing and uh, that was the early years of my life, but uh, that's also what I would consider a catalyst uh, for me to try to do the best I could for myself and my family uh, when I became an adult. And and going from you know from that to the compensation that you receive as a, as a union electrician is a pretty big difference. Yeah, it is. It, 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 big difference and, and and it just shows the the power of collective bargaining and it also shows uh the commitment of those that have that have beat this pathway down for us in the last uh, 125 30 years right right what are some of the uh you know what are some of the uh 
what is like the compensation that that you know you you talked yesterday y'all've got 27 different contracts so obviously it's going to be a little bit different but generally speaking you know if i talk to somebody in IBEW 558 what are what does their compensation package look like well so that's a uh, a complex question uh we we start out and we train um our apprentices and so starting pay for apprentices is around a little over $15 an hour. Uh, plus, they, they get their benefit package added in with that. But starting pay for a journeyman electrician uh, in our area or in our local is $30 an hour, uh, plus health care, plus three pensions going all at one time. Um, but those numbers can go up. We've got members that, that um, made over $200,000 last couple of years because of uh, how much work we're experiencing in North Alabama right now. Yeah, the overtime, when you're talking about making $30, $40 an hour, overtime can really add up if you uh, uh, if you start working working that. And y'all have got, what kind of work do y'all do? Okay, um, we, we are primarily, Local 558 here is primarily what you would consider a heavy industrial local unions. Uh, some local unions uh, lean more toward commercial work uh, but primarily ours is automotive plants here in North Alabama, uh, the data centers, Facebook. We have uh, a nuclear plant for hydros. We're doing a major upgrade at the former Colbert steam plant. Uh, we've got work at steel mills, uh, ULA, 3M, Counts Paper Mill. We've got 13 uh, co-ops and municipalities in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. So uh, essentially it's uh, like I told you yesterday, Nine volt to lightning volt uh, is right. Right, yeah, and that's and that's all over North Alabama. And well, we have ten counties in North Alabama and four in Southern Tennessee, so we've got fourteen counties covering our jurisdiction. Gotcha, gotcha. And and so, if somebody is is listening, and maybe they are interested in joining IBEW 558, what are the different paths? I mean, just my assumption would be that you can come in as an apprentice, but also if you're a non-union electrician, what are the what are the ways as a non-union electrician that you can come in uh, to the union? Okay, so what we require, and there is a avenue or a pathway to do that, what we require is five years verified by your W-2s that you have worked in the electrical field. Uh, and if you have that, we will bring you in, we will give you a written test, we will give you a hands-on test, and we will interview you. And if you meet the qualifications for that, that is an avenue that you can uh, come in. Most of ours uh, come in through our apprenticeship program. Uh, some, of those, some of those have no experience. Some of those have several years of experience, but they, they want that education to come with it. But there are two different avenues that, that can bring you in. And y'all's apprenticeship program, you said has, didn't you say something? It, it's received national recognition? Yeah, it, um, so the IBW at the international office, they've got their own production team. It's called IBW Our Power. It's, it's uh, a pretty large outfit. Um, our local and our apprenticeship school a few years back uh, was the fourth one that they came in and did a story on. Uh, and that's out of the United States and Canada, and uh, which we have a large, highly respected program, but uh, we're very proud of that. How many uh, apprentices did y'all graduate last year? 
So last year we graduated, we, matter of fact, we graduated about 30 last week and then about five lines. Um, but our classes now uh, have grown uh, quite a bit. So we out of, uh, out of, we've got five classes going right now, and now we've got 360. And so with the boom that's happened in the last couple of years here, we went from having classes the size of 30 to 35 to like 80 and 100. And so we've done last uh, two and a half, three years from basically 150 apprentices uh, across the board to around 360. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. that's and, – and, and so what is that doing for y'all's market share here? I know, I know that <clears throat> for – you know, there's we, we talk whenever we get tradespeople on. You know, one of the things that we often hit on is the differences between the trade unions and and industrial unions. Maybe like the machinists, right? You know, y'all y'all basically supply labor to contractors, whereas you know the machinists at ULA um, they they organized that company and 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 you know they're not kind of expanding or bidding for other work. They're just they're employees of that of that company, whereas it's a little bit different for the trades unions. And one of the things that, that is important for the trade unions is is market share. Um, because if you can increase your market share, obviously you increase your bargaining power. Right. Yeah, and ours, I, I, and I don't know our uh, exact numbers for 2021 and obviously this this first half of 2022. Uh, I know our growth has, has went up tremendously. We went from, um, 1,680 something members a couple of years ago to we're right at the threshold of 2,000 active members and our total memberships around 2,800. But uh, North Alabama has exploded. Obviously, you've got some major, major installations here. Mazda Toyota is going to uh, $2.6 billion. It's going to employ 4,000 people. Uh, FBI is going to employ 4,000 people. I do not know how many is going to be employed at Facebook. Uh, we're doing other expansions, but uh, we are growing, but this market is growing and it's growing at an unbelievable rate right now. Yep. I am, um, you know, spe- speaking of, uh, of growing a little bit, uh, th- this is, this isn't something I talked to you uh, about yesterday, but I-, I just thought about it and I'm wondering, I- I'm wondering your thoughts. The IBEW has, expanded in other states into uh representing coffee workers you know the the starbucks um the starbucks workers have absolutely exploded across the united states they've won over a hundred union elections they filed for like 300 um and that's been with starbucks workers united which is affiliated with workers united which is affiliated with seiu um but the ibew up in wisconsin i believe they won a Big un, uh, a big union election at Collectivo Coffee, and now they're representing a hundred baristas or something. And, and and now they just announced uh, that there's um, that there's a union election somewhere else at another kind of local coffee chain. Have y'all are is there what is the what is the response among the broader IBEW to expansions into into different industries like that? Uh, we fully support that um uh to expand on that a little bit there are uh nursing home facilities there are hospitals that are represented by the ibw there are security officers at nuclear plants uh just one contract we have on the army base one contract i've got 47 
uh, different positions uh, or skill sets there that we represent. So uh, we'll take all that growth. Uh, we want as many people working on collective bargaining agreements as we can get. And, uh, and, and one part of that, too, the IBW is a very large uh, union across North America, uh, you know, right at 800,000 members. And so that, that's a lot of name recognition and a lot of publicity with that. So that's why you're seeing that uh, in different areas like that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, the, when, when they released the, the press statement on the new union election at this other local coffee chain, um, the the person who started who reached out to IB to the IBEW for it, he said he saw somebody come in with an IBEW hat and he remembered the Collectivo campaign and he was like, oh hey, would y'all or, w- w- can we organize with y'all here? And they were like, well hell yeah, let's do it, you know. So <laughs> that's that's a pretty cool attitude, I think. Um, and the uh, another thing that you were talking, you know, just just on the benefits of unionization you know we talked about the compensation um you talked about the pensions uh obviously health is is another big thing you know i'm I, interested in what the healthcare differences are between your union electricians and the non-union electric- electricians but also you know the job security kind of aspect yeah you know the the idea knowing that you're protected going into work against unfair treatment, against being retaliated against or fired or disciplined for unjust, for not fair cause. Or, you know, you can obviously, be, if you're a union electrician, you can be fired or you can be disciplined for not doing your job well. But you can't, you know, your boss can't do that if he just walks in one day and he's unhappy. Like, you know, maybe him and his wife got into an argument or something, right? And 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 you talked about a grievance that you uh, uh, that y'all won that was that that you're really proud of about, um, you know, this person was fired unjustly. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, in, in every collective bargaining agreement we have, there's going to be a grievance procedure in there, and, and the unions wholeheartedly, you know, will always have that in their agreements. And so I've probably been, uh, I've probably processed well over a hundred grievances in the last eleven or twelve years. Um, but one is very unique in the fact that uh, we did have a member based off of some very inaccurate information that was terminated, and. Um, Ironically, uh, this member and myself, we didn't have a good personal relationship. Uh, and I think when when this took place, I think he was had some serious reserve reservations or cautions about, you know, how hard I would be fighting for him. And um, I remember our first meeting, I told him, I said, we'll pour everything on the line and we're going to do everything we can to help you. And uh, so this process took uh, eight to 10 weeks. I did not know until to, towards the end of this, this uh, member had not told his wife that he was terminated. He received <laughs> a, and he, he hit it off and uh, he got up every morning at three o'clock and he left his house and he came back home every day at the time that he, um, he normally got home. And it was all the way up to the end that he informed his wife of what was going on. But the good thing about this right here is the partnership uh, that the IBW had with this employer, this contractor, uh, is strong. It's a longstanding partnership, and um, 
contrary to what people believe, uh, everything is not always boiling water. It's not always a grueling battle. And we, we pride ourselves in building those partnerships for situations like this. And so we got to the point uh, that we got uh, to federal mediation. And once all of the facts came to life, uh, this employee was reinstated. Uh, this employee, and this has been uh, seven years ago, and he has been a model employee. And it's just fostered our relationship and our partner, not only with me and that member, uh, but me and that company, him and that company. And it's just been a very, and there was a lot of personal things that happened for him uh, during this pro process that, you know, that I can't speak of. But again, it just shows that sometimes um, these grievances are not as bloody as people would think they are. And they do have happy endings. Yeah, I think that that's something to, you know, a lot of times or you know i mean we're seeing we're seeing starbucks really go to the mat against their workers and and i think that the the um the degree to which workers being happy on the job can improve their performance can improve worker morale the the idea that workers feel like they're being taken care of that they're respected uh that they're valued as partners as members of the team I think that that management, bosses, executives, and, and people just kind of out in the world, they really underestimate that as a driver of performance and, and uh, of the employee and then and then as a result of that of the company. Yep. And you know, most people think uh, unions are formed just to get people more money. And that's not always the case. I mean, uh, compensation is like third or fourth on the priority list for, for most workers. Uh, so, and then the other thing that we've got going right now is uh, support for organized labor is really high, uh, right at 70, 70%, I think. So yeah, it's, um, it's a unique environment. I, I hope it continues to move in that direction. Uh, I think that's how the middle class grows. And, um, but it's not always about the money. It is about the respect, it's about stability, about being able to have a life outside of your job, not being a slave to your employer. And uh, a lot of people beat up uh, whatever the, the youngest generation is at that time. A lot of people beat up on that generation. But this young generation we're seeing now, uh, they have a lot of, um, um, they're passionate about having a life outside of their work. I guess that's just the broadest way that I can put that. Right. Yeah, yep. well, I mean, I'm certainly not interested myself in being a slave to my job. You know, I want I want enough money that I can be comfortable. And after that, I'm not, you know, I'm not really interested in making even, you know, 200, 300, 400, a million dollars a year. Like, I want to make enough money that I can go on vacation every now and then. And then I want to spend as much of my time as possible doing whatever the hell I want. And that's and that's the big thing that that uh, that that I like about, you know, th that that unions can support and, and having a good union job is that I have plenty of time off and with good compensation. And, and that's that's the thing that's important to me. And I, I think that's uh, like you said, that's something that's really important, especially the younger people, um, because, you know, I think that I think that folks uh, folks nowadays are seeing the importance maybe of that work life balance in, in a way that that hasn't always been the case. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, unions were uh, primarily formed based off of the fact that that people were working seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. Uh, very dangerous, deadly jobs. And so with this growth of, of, of Americans accepting and favoring unions, it's kind of like we're getting back to our ground game uh, of the late 1800s. Right. I think so. I think so. Uh, Tony, I appreciate your time. If anybody is interested in, if they're a non-union electrician, if they are somebody that's that's only been in it a few years and maybe they want to do an apprenticeship or or maybe... They're, hell, they're a local coffee worker, and they're like, oh, well, maybe I want to unionize with the IBEW. How do they get in contact with y'all? Very easy. Uh, we are, uh, you can Google us, you know, and um, our number's uh, 256-383-2279. Uh, we are on Facebook. It's just IBEW558, and uh, we are very easy to get in touch with, and we're willing to help everybody we can help. Absolutely. And of course, you'll be able to hear his phone number on uh, our ads, uh, on the ads that they've got playing playing on our program. IBEW558 is a sponsor of the program, uh, and we appreciate y'all's support. Uh, Tony, thank you for your time. Holler at me if you ever have any, uh, any good stories for us, okay? All right. Thank you so much, Jacob. Y'all have a great day. All right, man. You Thanks, too. Tony. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was Tony Quillen. He is business manager of IBEW Local 558, president of the State Electrical Workers, president of the North Alabama Building Trades. You heard how you can get in touch with him, so do that if you are interested in uh, in joining the union or unionizing your workplace. Or if you're an educator and uh, you're talking to young people, you know, if you work yes. in a community college, something if like that. If you're a high school teacher, if you're a tech teacher, Definitely, definitely reach out to them for that. That way, uh, I, I think that's so important, so important. You know, even I, I think that, you know, college is college is something that's been pushed on young people to an unhealthy degree, and I think we're starting to move away from that a little bit. But even as we move away from that, the trade unions are not being emphasized to the degree that they should be. Yeah, certainly not here in Alabama. So certainly you know, th- not here in Alabama. So yeah, anytime I have an opportunity, I'm going to throw that out there that uh, we need more yeah. partnerships between our schools and our trade union apprenticeship programs because these are opportunities for young people to go to work and, and be treated with dignity, to have the compensation and benefits that they need to to really get get started as a young adult out here in the workforce and and raise a family. Yeah. And so, you know, if if you know some people who are at a career transition phase or, or they just graduated high school, just just left, hey, steer them this way. See see if this is an opportunity they would be interested in because it could be you know a, a game changer for them. And you heard him starting wages is 15 an hour uh, with benefits, with benefits. While I, you're learning. While I mean, you're learning. So that's, that's great. And then you start at $30 an hour, $30-something an hour as a journeyman with those benefits, with three pensions, uh, with health care, with a grievance procedure, with a procedure that you can be reinstated if you've been unfairly terminated, with back pay. I mean, just so many benefits that you are not going to get. And, and this is another thing we didn't touch on. He, or he touched on it briefly. The IBEW is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. International. Across the United States and Canada, 
They've got locals there. And what does that mean? That means if work dries up for some reason, which we're not anticipating that, obviously, with the, with the way that North Alabama's moving. But let's just say it does. In 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, something happens, work dries up in North Alabama. Well, there's going to be work somewhere else. Right. And you can fill one of those jobs. Or maybe you're interested in leaving. I maybe mean, you're interested in leaving and going and working, traveling somewhere else. You can't do that with some local podunk non-union contractor. Yeah. The, the 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 uh it's just not there it's just not there uh the opportunities that you've got to maintain a job is just not there with some non-union local contractor um and, and tony said in the chat uh he, he said we actually do several uh visits to schools in north alabama and southern tennessee uh, that's awesome that's awesome Love to hear that, Tony. Um, and 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 maybe we can get uh, maybe we can get one of those uh, one of those teachers on the program to talk to us about how their students receive that at some point. That would be really great. Covering eight hundred thousand workers across North America, and yes, you can work through the entire country as an IBEW member. That's such a huge benefit. I mean, having that to fall back on in a time of recession that, uh, and obviously, look, you don't want to move. A lot of times, a lot of people don't want to move. They don't want to uproot their lives. But that is something that union members, that trade union members can fall back on that as a non-union electrician, you don't have that to fall back on. You just don't. The idea that that there's going to be a job somewhere for you in the country. Um, So... So we appreciate Tony. Uh, yeah, good stuff on. from Tony good stuff, for sure. Good stuff. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. Don't change the channel. This is the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project, or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth to good labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Just got off the line with Tony Quillen, business manager of the IBEW Local 558, talking about talking about the union, talking about the kind of work that they do, the kind of benefits that they have, how you can get involved. If you missed that, don't worry, you can find us online. We're on YouTube and Facebook, uh, and you can go back and watch the full show or clips throughout the week. So make sure that you're following us there. Um, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we talked about abortion rights and how they are not only a culture war issue, which it's been turned into a culture war kind of issue, but it's they're also an essential bread and butter economic issue for women in this country. Uh, there were a couple good articles about that a few weeks ago. Um, that we've been we've been wanting to get to and and, and we just been um, just been running out of time. So this one from Asia Banerjee in in these times lays out some really good stuff. Quoting from the article, 
Some of the economic consequences of being denied an abortion include a higher chance of being in poverty even four years after, a lower likelihood of being employed full-time, and an increase in unpaid debts and financial distress lasting years. Laws that restrict abortion providers, so-called trap laws, which are targeted regulation of abortion providers, have led women in those states to being less likely to move into higher paying occupations. On the flip side, environments where abortion is legal and accessible have lower rates of teen first births and marriages. Abortion legalization has also been associated with reduced maternal mortality for black women. The ability to uh, uh, to delay having a child has been found to translate to significantly increased wages and labor earnings, especially among black women, as well as increased likelihood of educational attainment. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen concluded that eliminating the rights of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects on the economy and would set women back decades. Alito, in his draft ruling, anticipates this argument, saying that, oh, you know, there's a crucial difference between now and when Roe was decided that makes it not as bad that we as the state could be forcing women to carry a pregnancy to term, Uh, which is the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. Harold Meyerson points out in the American Prospect that in the states where trigger laws have already been passed, banning or restricting abortion as soon as Alito's screed becomes the law of the land, and in other Republican-run states now crafting anti-choice diktats, however, the very idea of paid leave, which is important, the FMLA only guarantees unpaid leave. The idea of paid leave remains anathema. In South Dakota, where Republican Governor Kristi Noem has repeatedly shown she will do anything to slither up the Republican rights list of rights presidential candidates, the legislature passed and Noem signed a law last year forbidding cities and counties from enacting paid family leave ordinances of their own. Lest some bomb-throwing Sioux Falls malcontents think they can sneak a fast one past Kristi. Just imagine, like the, the the state government is coming in and telling cities, you can't, with your budget, give women time off if they have children. Very reminiscent of, of Alabama. And when Stopping we saw the minimum wage, yeah. absolutely raise the wage movement stopped in its tracks after some success in Birmingham. Yeah, it, it, it's it, <sighs> it's funny how small government works that way. It's insane. And these are the people that want the state to force you to carry a pregnancy to term. They're the very same people that are stopping us from supporting mothers economically and socially. These are the people that are stopping those things from happening. Right. Don't tell me your family, your pro-family values and you can't even support paid family leave. That should be, you know, that should be like the, the basic qualification I worked in a restaurant for three years, and there was a woman there who had a baby. She worked a, a double 
and the next day she gave birth. And it wasn't that she was early. She worked right until she gave birth. And she was back two or three days later. Because she didn't have paid leave. She couldn't afford to take time off to be with her new baby. And that just shouldn't happen in the wealthiest country on earth. And it especially shouldn't happen if you believe that the state should force women to carry a pregnancy to term. If you believe that we should that, that that we should be governed by the religious ideas that you've got in your head, you should at least soften the blow for people. But that was a choice that she made. She didn't have to do that. She made that choice. She wanted a baby. And so she did that. But Alabama wants to create a state where women are forced to do that against their will and still not have that support. It's one thing to to go down this path knowing you're not going to have support from the state and doing it anyway. It's another to be forced by the state to go down this path with the knowledge that the state isn't going to isn't going to protect you. It, it it's so it's so frustrating. Back to the article. So it's in the states where women will be compelled to carry pregnancies to term that many of those women and their families will be on their own financially from the moment the child emerges from the sanctity of the womb into the hard scrabble penury of life outside and from the fervent defense of the pro-life movement into its utter indifference to life post-womb. It's just so, it's so frustrating, but I mean, this isn't, you know, unless you think that we are, uh, we're okay. You know, the American prospect in these times magazine, these are liberal outlets. These are radical liberal outlets. I think that you, Jake, and, and these people in these other outlets are misrepresenting what pro-life people stand for. Lest you think that let's play this clip from this station where they talk about the financial distress uh, that that women will have to face if they um, if they're forced to carry a pregnancy to term. Let's play that. And then lastly, the idea that we should not overturn Roe v. Wade because people might have to figure out childcare and time off from work and the price of gas. My God, don't parents already figure that stuff out? Haven't they been figuring that stuff out from time immemorial? I mean, from the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, didn't they have to figure out what to do with child care? I would suspect they did. So, Dalton Johnson, you're a knucklehead. And the very idea that you're just trying to protect your revenue-producing option there at the health care clinic for women in, in, in Huntsville, I mean, all you're doing is just trying to preserve your revenue stream. You're not overly worried about the women and the price of gas and the child care. And, oh, this is awful. This is going to be bad. I mean, you, I mean, do you hear that? Just contempt. Just total contempt for these people that are gonna have to that are gonna have to do that. Uh, I mean, seriously, the way they oh the price of gas and and also and and <laughs> literally the next day he's gonna go on and talk about how the the price of gas is a total problem. But but when we're talking about when when people that he perceives on as on a different side are saying oh yeah like the price of gas is a problem what he's responding to there is a clip from the director of a women's clinic in Huntsville talking about how uh, if you force women to give birth 
The price, the price of gas is an issue. I just filled up yesterday, seventy-five dollars. That's an issue, right? That's and, and the uh, the price of gas, inflation, having to having to pay bills for a child that you don't want to have. That's an issue, and that's an issue that that people should be concerned about, and that's an issue that he is fearmongering about on a daily basis. But when we bring it up in this context, he literally mocks it. He said, "Oh, the price of gas. Oh, oh, yeah." I mean, seriously. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it didn't really matter to him. I, I, I believe he has children, but I'm sure he was financially well off enough to where maybe it wasn't a big issue. But uh, as a working class father, and I know many of our listeners have children and grandchildren of their own, we know how expensive it is to raise a child. We know how expensive it is to to get diapers. Uh, Right now, you can't. You're lucky if you can even find baby formula for your child. Uh, and of course, the older they get, the more uh, the more cost you have in terms of uh, activities, in terms of uh, education. You know, we we don't have universal pre-K here in Alabama. We have a great state pre-K program, but it's not accessible to everyone. So you know, childcare. You're lucky if you can get childcare. You know, for five hundred dollars a month. Maybe, maybe a lot more than that. So yeah, the the economic costs are absolutely a factor in in deciding to have a child. I mean, we we all know people in our lives who've decided to have no children or to have less children because they can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, ben, we've got a caller on the line that we're going to bring on. If you could make sure that that we're going to be able to get that out over the radio. Um, but the blasé attitude towards the plight of women isn't contained just to our own local Coke-funded talker. Let's take a look at Louisiana, where U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy said if you don't count black women, our maternal mortality rate isn't that bad. <laughs> Golly. As if Black women are not Louisianans. Quote, about a third of our population is African-American. African-Americans have a higher incidence of maternal mortality. So if you correct our population for race, we're not as much an outlier as it would otherwise appear. Like, dude, black women are just as much citizens of your state as white women. They, they count. You can't just take them out. That's a very revealing comment. It is a very revealing comment. In addition to economics, you've of course got the health effects from another from another article in In These Times by Miriam Markowitz. Quote: There are the obvious adverse effects such as weight gain and hypertension, as well as preterm birth and ectopic pregnancies. Gestational diabetes is likely to reappear as regular diabetes later in life. Preeclampsia brings increased risk of kidney disease, heart disease, uh, thromboembolism, hypothyroidism, and impaired memory. A pregnant person should prepare for the possibility of anemia, urinary tract infections, and mood disorders before and after birth. This list is far from comprehensive and likely to grow longer. Severe maternal morbidity is rising along with mortality and now affects between 50,000 and 60,000 people in the United States every year. In other words, going into labor carries a 1 in 60 risk of health effects as serious as a heart attack or a hysterectomy. 
Lots of women make this choice to become pregnant and give birth willingly. Lots of people do. But it should always be a choice. Not the enforcement by armed agents of the states to enforce the ideas that religious zealots have in their heads. Like if you, uh, you know, if you believe that a, if you believe that a fetus is a life, you know, what, like, I'm I'm not going to tell you, you can't believe that obviously, uh, but you can't make me believe that. And you can't enforce that idea because that's a, that's just an idea that you have in your head. That's just your religion. You cannot force the idea on people that and and force them to carry a pregnancy to term. That's just it's just not right. It's just not right. It, and it and it's it and it's it's so frustrating that the the people that are going to do this are the people that make it the most difficult for women to get support when they do give birth. Let's right. bring that caller on the air. Caller, uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello? Uh, yes. Yes, it's me. Yes, it is. Um, well, I just wanted to call in and ask about something else. Then I heard y'all make mention of the fella in Louisiana. Who's that again? Uh, U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy was who we uh, was who we mentioned. Wow, wow. Well, number one, I'd like to point out the fact he's from Wisconsin. <laughs> he's actually <laughs> from Wisconsin. Is, um, I think so. I think he's a carpetbagger. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Well, we've got a carpetbagger here in in Alabama. <laughs> Tommy Tupperville uh, lives in Florida or something. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I don't know. I just think that um, from a historical materialist lens, we have to... Did I get disconnected? No, no, no. I can still hear you. And, and, and by the way, what was your name and where you're calling from? Uh, Strom McCallum from Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I think from a historical materialist lens, we really have to begin uh, destroying these conceptions of racial communities and bring together people as proletarians. We have to overcome these capitalist cultural hegemonic means. And the problem is, is like, you'll see a lot of people who describe Southerners and they only mean white Southerners. They don't mean our black neighbors and i think that um yeah uh, it's uh we really have to emancipate people from these narrow definitions of community if we want to build a larger international conception of people as proletarians i think it really begins with uh destroying lines within communities communities of people whose ancestors have lived side by side for centuries probably so yeah i appreciate the call thank you and uh yeah i, I don't disagree with that yeah. and i think that's something that's in uh, that's uh um thank you for your call strom i appreciate it strom from south carolina and and that's you know um i think that's something that the labor movement is able to do uh really well is able to bring people uh together across uh race and gender lines uh to fight for the same thing to fight for each other to humanize each other um one of my favorite one of my favorite interviews uh 
over the years that we've been doing this has been a couple of nurses from Pennsylvania. One was one of them was a conservative and one of them was a liberal. And uh, the conservative fellow said, I, I never realized that liberals were like so human, so much like me or something, you know, and and um, and I think that, you know, being in a union with people, being in the same community with people is really helpful in 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 humanizing people and in 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 helping us to understand that these are uh that that these are our people they're the same as us and um you know whatever whatever people want to do to try to divide us um a lot of it is is going to be artificial right absolutely and i think yeah to strom's point there's a lot invested in keeping us divided along uh, racial lines gender lines religious lines but you know, that's we have a common humanity that we have to focus on. We we have to recognize each other's differences and, and the different types of oppression that people face because of who they are and what they are. But we can acknowledge those things and address those things while still building solidarity across those lines and, and organizing along those common interests. And, and to your point, Jacob, I think that's that's the promise of the labor movement. We don't always live up to that promise, but I think that's. Uh, the potential that we have. And, and that's what we have to do if we're going to make a difference, considering the scale of crises that we face from inequality to climate change to attacks on on, on rights uh, of basically every kind. I think that's what I, we have to do is addition, not subtraction, and just keep building building a movement that is diverse and that reflects those common interests that we have as workers and as as human beings. I did want to mention uh, as we're as we're wrapping up here, uh, we are going to be going to labor notes here in a couple of weeks. The labor notes convention in Chicago is in Chicago from uh, June 17 to June 19. Registration is closed now. Um, so if you haven't registered, um, unfortunately, it's a bit late. Uh, but if you have registered and you are in Alabama or en route to Chicago um, and you need a ride, let us know. We have uh, one seat open in the Valley Labor Report mobile going to Chicago. <laughs> um, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's uh, It will be a lot of fun. We'll have plenty <laughs> to report back on. And we may have a uh, list of guests to pull from for the next oh, yeah. couple of years. Uh, just right, right. looking over that conference agenda. Uh, Amazon Labor Union, the Starbucks organizers, mm -hmm. John Deere strikers, Minneapolis striking teachers, you name it, any high profile and, and low profile just about labor struggle that you've remotely heard of over the past year or two, chances are they're going to be at this conference. And they're going to have meetings for workers in every different sector, uh, federal workers, teachers, healthcare workers, workers to get stage together hands. and stage hands to get together and, and think about, you know, like, how can we organize better? How can we come together? How can we support each other as we're organizing in these different industries? Um, I am facilitating a panel discussion on organizing the South. Um, it, it, I am, uh, I'm, I'm just extremely excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we're going to get to meet some of our uh, guests. Bernie Sanders is speaking in person nice. at it. Did you see that? Adam? I did not know that. Yeah. That's awesome. They just announced that yesterday. Bernie Sanders is going to be, be there in person. Um, but so. I, I have noticed a lot of familiar names on the agenda. Some of hmm. the mm -hmm. people that have actually <clears throat> been on this show, whether they're authors or organizers, uh, you know, Zach Patton, uh, our longshore brother from the yep. West Coast is going to be there. 
uh, Max Alvarez, Kim Kelly. So a lot of the folks that we've had the pleasure of interviewing over the years will get get a chance to actually meet in person and, and attend some of their workshops. So really, really looking forward to it. And I think that's uh, hopefully going to inspire us and, and a whole lot of other people to do some good work coming out of it. Yeah, I hope so. Um, folks, that is going to be it for us on the radio today. Um, just a reminder, if you want to support the program, leave us a voicemail. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can buy a hat or give us money on our website, tvlr.fm. Find us online right now. Right now, where we're going to be talking to uh, about some national labor stories and chatting with Matt Leck and David Griscom of Left Reckoning about Joe Rogan and Elon Musk and Joe Byron. Going to be a lot of fun. Um, find us online, and and you can still call in, call into the show, and talk to us in overtime. So find us online. Keep watching the show. Um, Until then, we'll see you next week. All power to the workers. 